Hey, good morning, Arbor Church. So excited to be here with you today. Oops, there's my mic. Glad to be with you this morning. I love being part of this series. Uh, the Letters to a Young Church series is near and dear to my heart because I know that we are a little young church. We're coming up on our fourth birthday and we wanted to know, like, did God have any messages for us in this season uh, that we could take to heart? What truths uh, maybe that we could find in the Bible that would help us through the young church season? And sure enough, we did find some. Paul had planted churches and then wrote letters to them when they were just kind of getting started. And so we're, we're gonna be in 1 Thessalonians, uh, which is chronologically the very first letter that he had written. So we're, we're, we're picturing them being just like us, maybe in their fourth year. The, the fun thing about, or the challenge I should say, about this uh, message today, 1 Thessalonians 2 is where we're gonna be camping out. And so if you wanna grab your Bibles and whip it open, that's where we'll be. The, the, one of the major concepts in this chapter is talking about a pastor's heart for his congregation, or her congregation as it is. So the tricky thing about being Arbor right now is that we're in between senior leaders, between senior pastors. We said goodbye to um, our senior pastor a couple months ago, but we don't know yet who is ahead of us. So when we talk about the pastors in this, in this uh, chapter, you may wonder at times, like, am I subtweeting? Am I subtweeting anyone? Do you guys know what a subtweet is? <laughs> this is a passive aggressive way to kind of jab it to somebody when, uh, but without saying their name. And so I'll give you an example. If the prayer team were here and they went home after service and they jumped on Twitter and they said something like, ooh, pastors in masks, gross, or something like that, I would know if that person had been at Arbor and had tweeted that, I would know they were referring to me, right? Because they had said, you know, a pastor in a mask, they were at Arbor that morning, I would know they were subtweeting me which they're not, hopefully. But point being, we're gonna be talking about pastors here in this, in this text this morning, and in no way am I subtweeting anybody. Uh, it may remind you of different pastors or spiritual leaders you've had in, the, in, in your past, so it's probably because there's nothing new under the sun, right? Okay, so here we go. Let me give you a little context, though, and I'll do it without my glasses, because I took a look at me with a mask and glasses. It's, it's humbling. <laughs> Context of 1 Thessalonians. Who was this church that Paul was writing to? They were located on the sea. They were a major seaport, and so they were connected to some other major cities of that time. Some may seem familiar to you. Corinth, Ephesus, rings a bell, yeah? Um, so it's in modern day Greece. Back then it was a Roman providence called Macedonia. And Thessalonica was not only connected to others by seaport or by sea trades, 
They were also on something that is called the Ignatian Way. And that is like a superhighway connecting Rome to the, to the Orient, which is Istanbul, Turkey. You know, so anyhow, they were super well connected by land and by sea to all the major cities in that region. What this did was build a very diverse population. They were, there were about 200,000 people living in that time in Thessalonica. There were Greeks there, Roman citizens, Jewish citizens. There were people from Asia. It's basically a little melting pot, right? Well, their moral or their, cult, their spiritual influence, mostly at that time, aside from the Jews, most of them were Gentiles non-Jewish people who had come out of the Greek pagan culture. So like, you know, all the gods and the goddesses, they were coming out of that kind of scheme. So when Paul came through, he had, he had joined together with Timothy and Silas. They were traveling on their missionary, their second missionary journey, which I like to actually call their world tour. <laughs> they were going to all these major ports and evangelizing. They were bringing with them the gospel, which is the good news that there is a God who loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins and take, give you eternal life in exchange for the crummy, desperate, and that you ordinarily would have had by just living for this world alone. He's inviting you in to live an eternal life with him through the, through the sacrifice and love of his son, Jesus. So here, Paul is a messenger holding this precious message, the gospel. And he has taken it to Thessalonica. All these new believers are jumping on, and it's great except for the fact that Paul has to leave them. He can't stay and like, like nurture up these new believers and train them you know, in, this, in this new Christian life that they have. So he's writing a letter back and he's reflecting on some of the things he had already taught them. And he's also referring to some of the things they're struggling with. And here's a couple of the things about this long distance pastoring. It's not, not easy. Back then, it's not easy now. <laughs> His converts, the new little church, they were experiencing a lot of social um, pressure. Their families were not super excited about their new faith. So they'd be sitting around the Thanksgiving table, for example, and the grandma would kind of like throw in little digs about like whatever this, this gospel message is, right? Or she'd throw shade on the pastors. She'd be like, I'm not positive I trust that Paul character. Like, what if he's not legit, right? So Paul is aware that his new believers in this church are experiencing such pressure, right? They're actually being persecuted for their faith. It's more than just uncomfortable conversations at the Thanksgiving table. So anyhow, he's relying on this letter to do a little bit of pastoring for him. I, I kind of clicked with him in a way. I, I feel like with 2020, we've had some distance between our congregations and our pastors. And it's been hard to connect. Like, it's just not as easy to get together over a Starbucks, you know, and talk through some of the things that are, we're, we're working through. 
So it's like you throw things out online and you're hoping that somebody's listening, but you know, it, it, it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. So let's see what this chapter has then that we might draw strength from. What truths were true then that are truths for us today? So the basic sketch of this whole chapter, it talks about a pastor's heart, if you're taking notes, a pastor's heart and the church's part. We're gonna talk about both. What's true for then is true for us today. So let's find out what those things are. Let's look first at a pastor's heart. Paul starts by reminding them of their time together. And he says, you know, you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we'd been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So in classic missionary style, um, there is a sandwich of difficulty between a missionary journey, okay? There's, there's shipwrecks Paul's dealt with, there's snake bites, there's uh, persecution, all sorts of bad things. But he's saying to them, hey, it's God who, who gave us the boldness to come and talk to you. It's so important that this gospel be given to you that persecution or opposition was not going to stop us. And then he begins to talk about reestablishing his authority to teach them. Uh, the structure he uses in this kind of uh, discussion is something that was very familiar to this ancient culture. He's going to talk about things that are true about him, and he's going to contrast it with things that might be um, misconceptions, shall we say. So he knows what the, street on, the word on the street might be, and he's going to talk about the things that people might be assuming about him as a pastor. He's gonna kind of call him out. I, I really appreciated his boldness here, I loved it. In a way, you can think of this style of um, defining oneself. You could think about it like if I say, those guys over there, they're really, they're young, but they're not immature. So by saying that somebody is young, I could be inferring that the misperception of that, of that is that they are immature, but I'm gonna call it out and say they're not. Or another example is, well, he's a 49ers fan, but he's not obnoxious. So the misperception would be that all 49er fans are obnoxious, right? So by saying it like he is this, but he's not that, he's helping define who he is, his character. So we're gonna be seeing why he does this is because he's trying to protect the message. Again, the most important thing is that these people trust the gospel. And the problem is, is if you don't trust who's bringing the gospel to you, you don't trust the message. If you don't trust the messenger, you may not trust the message. So here he goes. In verse three, he says, you, you can see we were not preaching with deceit or impure motives or trickery. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose, it's to please God, not people. God alone is the one who examines the motives of our heart. 
So deceit, impure motives, or trickery. Why does he mention those things? Well, it's because in those days, he wants, he wants to differentiate himself from the people out there who were just simply spewing religious instruction uh, for the wrong motives. Like, I want power, or money, or influence. And so it reminded me of cancel culture these days. Uh, you know, when people think you're shady, they'll cancel you. And how did they do that? I mean, how did they do that then? They would throw you out of town. <laughs> they would discard your message as well. Nowadays, they'll unfollow you, they'll unsubscribe to your newsletter, they'll stop supporting you financially, they won't buy your book, etc. So any hint, Paul knew that any hint of having bad motives or being a shyster or, or whatever, it meant that the people would discard the message. It would cancel it. So he's calling those things out. Those are common misperceptions. He's talking about it as he reestablishes his trustworthiness. And he also repoints out, hey, it's actually God who sent us here. He entrusted us with this good news. And we're not here to please people. We're here to please God. So I think that's true today. It was true then and it's true today. Um, the cancel culture thing is real. It's, it's a real deal. And if we, as pastors or messengers of the gospel, if we don't handle the message in a trustworthy fashion, people may discard that as well as discard us. He goes on in verse five and he says, never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness, we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we've never sought it from you or anyone else. Manipulating others through flattery. <laughs> Centuries old, why is that? It's because it works, right? It works. Flattery in the ancient world, though, people knew that that was um, a well-known kind of way to go about communicating. And actually, it was a much despised kind of practice. So Paul is, again, mentioning the hard things. He's saying, we're not flatterers. We're not trying to leverage anything over you just by um, saying flattering things. So though the church has so much to actually be affirmed in, they're a good church, he loves them and he wants to bless and affirm them. He's also not doing it though. Flattery, the difference there is um, flattery is using leverage over somebody, like to get a manipulating way in. He's not just trying to get their business. So that's true then, that's true today as well. And just a side note, I thought it'd be fun to kind of peek behind the arbor curtain for a second. Um, I've got a, a, something that I love here that we do. It's a, I call it the donor blind policy, but I'm sure there's a better word for it. The concept is that if you are super generous and you're a faithful giver here, the pastoral staff is unaware. And what that does um, is that when the phone rings at midnight and somebody's in the emergency room needing a pastor, we don't look at who's on the phone and think, oh, they're a big donor, we better hurry and care for them 
like quicker than another person. Or we don't look at the phone and go, you know what, they never give, they've never given a, a penny here, I'm gonna just screen the call. And same is true in our inbox, actually. When the input comes in, I'm not filtering it through like, oh, who's a big donor and who's not? So I like this donor blind thing. I like not knowing. I like not uh, being influenced by money for any other, you know, for all the obvious reasons. So anyhow, and something else that was true then, true today. Okay, then he goes on to verse seven, and he says, as apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead, we were like little children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but we shared our lives with you. He's reminding them about their time that they spent together when he was there, and he's verifying the character of not just himself, but Silas and Timothy. He's saying, even though there was like a little more authority, like he's a seasoned pastor in the gospel, right? And he's training them. There's like an authority thing, like he's training them in their new faith, but he didn't like assert his authority over them in a domineering kind of way. Rather, it was like they were friends, right? They were hanging out. They were brothers and sisters and like little children, like without guile, uh, they were trustworthy, right? Trustworthy. And then he also talks about the mother. And of course, I love this because I'm a mom, so I like resonated with this on, on a special level. There's a transliteration, which means word for word, like exactly what does it say? And here's what it says. We could have asserted our authority as apostles of Christ, but we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children in the same way we had a fond affection for you. So I think it's important to note that Paul is using this feminine language knowing that his audience loves moms, trusts moms. Like they immediately click. It was a revered position to be a mother in that culture. And so for him, it's the perfect illustration for how to, how to illustrate gentleness, right? I love that he picked the nursing mom too. And it reminded me, as I was like preparing for this message, it reminded me back in the day when I was, I was in that own role I had three kids in three and a half years. I know, what was I thinking? <laughs> a, what was I thinking? B, <laughs> I'll never forget the lessons I learned in that. And I love that those, things can, those, those lessons can be applied to pastoring today, a pastor's heart. You've got somebody who is so focused on the care of their child that their whole entire body is attuned to meet the needs of that, of that little baby, right? I remember knowing, I knew before my baby was going to be hungry, I knew it was almost time for them to eat, right? Also, as soon as they started crying, there was nothing I wouldn't do to go and feed that baby. I'd pull off the road, I'd find a little corner at the mall or some, you know, it's like nursing moms know all the, the places that you can go in this world to go and nurse your baby. <laughs> so... Um, 
it, in the middle of the night, you hear the cry and you're like beelining for them. And it's like, there's nothing that wouldn't stop you from caring for your child in that moment. So there's care and there's gentleness. And I think also there's that level of protection too. It's like a mother is so intuitive. She builds that intuition over time. She's able to know, is the baby hungry or just tired? Is it needing just my presence? Does Ben have an ear infection again? <laughs> like You just know these things as a mom. You can even figure out by the style of their cry, you know, what it is they actually need. So, so Paul is saying, this is how he pastored them, right? The intuition, that deep knowing of them and knowing what, was, what they needed at that moment care and protection. So mostly a nursing mom is being seen as trustworthy. I think that he keeps coming back to this, like why he's able to be trusted. And again, it's because he wants to, to guard the gospel as being trust, trusted as well. Verse 9 he goes on using more family language. We've used children, now we've heard about uh, moms, and now he says this. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we wouldn't be a burden to you, any of you as we preach God's good news to you. So here's the resume or the character analysis. Hearing the spirit of partnership, right? Brothers and sisters, toiling, working hard among you. I love that. I, I, I remembered that Paul was a tent maker who actually was able to pull in his own income to uh, take care of some of his own expenses. He really was cognizant of not wanting to be a burden, a financial burden to the people he was ministering to. So he was partnering with them. They worked together. He actually pulled in some income of his own so that he wouldn't drain them. And I loved, I loved thinking he's not the guy in the back office eating grapes by the fountain, you know, while the rest of everybody else is doing all the hard work. I loved knowing he was shoulder to shoulder with them, right? Wouldn't we love pastors to do that? You know, you have that spirit of partnership together instead of like a boss um, kind of situation. So anyhow, I did get a little nervous when I saw the, the phrase night and day. He said he worked night and day, and I was like, oh no, that's something I don't know if I can do. I need my sleep. But actually, I did some research, and they said if you have night meetings, check, that qualifies. I was like, okay, I've had night meetings. That, that qualifies. So, okay, let's go on. Verse 10, he says, you yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God. We were devout and honest and faultless towards all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to walk worthy of the God who is calling you into his own kingdom and glory. So these are big words um, for a pastor to hold up under. Devout, honest, and faultless. There are other translations that kind of expand this, and they say pure, in godly relationships, blameless, 
above reproach. And I think church, Arbor, Arbor, you deserve that. You do. You do. So he, he mentions the father role here. We treated you as fathers treat their own children. Family language. And back in the ancient world, the father, whereas the mother was that protective, caring, good, gentle example, the father's role back then was more of like a, a, a father coach. Like, I'll, I'm going to teach you the ways of the socioeconomic uh, world that you are living in right now. Um, and I'm going to teach you all the basics, the customs, how to get around and get along, the language to speak, how to hold yourself in this world. And I think about that as a pastor to a new congregation of people who just stepped out of a pagan culture. And they may have been asking questions like, how do I parent in a godly way? How do I use my money? How do I go on dates? How do I date? How do I consider the topic of death? Like some of these basics, like if you were coming out of a pagan culture, you wouldn't necessarily know a Christian answer for that. And so the pastor comes in as that father coach, right? He's like, I'll teach you, I'll show you. And then it, further, he says in verse 12, he's pleading, encouraging, and urging to do what? To live your lives in a way that God considers worthy. Walk worthy. Why? Because God is the one who's calling you to share in his kingdom and glory. When I was studying this verse, I, I had the word linchpin come to mind, and I was like, this is a linchpin. <laughs> then I was like, wait, what the heck does that mean? So I, I like double-checked my meaning. Do you guys ever do that, where you, like, you check your meaning just to make sure you're not misusing it, right? So a linchpin is where it's like in the middle of a spoked wheel, and it's a thing that holds it, all the spokes together. If you take it out, the integrity of the wheel is compromised, and it can fall apart. So anyhow, this verse is like a linchpin to me. Walk worthy. We've looked at the pastors, all the things that a pastor should be, right? Trustworthy. And we're going to be moving into the second section, which is what is the church's part? What are they to do? Walk worthy. It's the linchpin. So the pastors, again, this whole time, is, it's been building up. You're approved by God to be the messengers of the gospel. Your character, your behavior, your motives, trustworthy. And now he's had the right to speak. And in it, he says to them, I want you to walk worthy. Live your lives worthy of this call. So the church's part, you're walking worthy. There's more. There's more. It's, it has a purpose. The purpose is because God is calling you. God is calling you to walk worthy. He's calling you to his kingdom and his glory. So this is for both of us. That linchpin verse, walk worthy, is for both of us. Paul is a big fan of this concept, and he uses it in other places, in other letters to the churches. So for example, in Ephesians chapter four, he says, 
Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with, with which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then in Colossians, he kind of fleshed it out a little bit too. Colossians chapter 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Please him in all respects. Bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. So this is for both of us, pastors, people. This is how we walk worthy. And then he's going to come in here as well. He says, we've never stopped thanking God that when you've received this message from us, you didn't think our words were just mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you, believers. So the church's part is to learn from the word and let it work in us. Simple, huh? <laughs> it's hard. I'll, I'll admit it, it's hard. And here's one reason it can be hard. We talked about messengers who bring the word. And if we don't trust them, we don't trust the word often. And I thought about how some of that distrust can look like a brick. Disappointments from a spiritual leader or a faith leader, disappointments can be like a brick that stacks up in your heart and in your mind, right? Because the things that we feel often become the things that we think. So if we're like, you know what? That leader was not trustworthy. I distrust that person. I'm gonna let that, I'm gonna let that sit there. If I'm bitter, I have unresolved anger towards somebody, that also is gonna get stacked in there too. If I have pain or hurt, I'm gonna add that in there. Pretty soon I start becoming very heavy hearted, don't I? All of these bricks taking the shape of a wall in my heart. Pretty soon, if these things are left to build and they get cemented in there, they form a wall that weighs me down. But also, it keeps me from hearing the word of the Lord. It keeps me far from him. I was going to do an experiment to see if I could put my cell phone at the bottom of a pile of bricks and, I, and then ring it and see if I could actually hear it. Like, he's calling. Can you hear it? But then I thought, you know what, I can't, ex I, I can't afford that to go wrong. So, but point being, with brick walls in our hearts and in our ears and in our, in, our, in our minds, we're keeping ourselves from being soft to the call that God has for us. And these walls, they keep us from each other as well. He's purposed for us that we would live like a family, not just like a family, but be a family. And with these things cemented in our hearts and minds, we're not tenderhearted. We're not soft. We're, we're distant. We're distant. We're distrustful, right? So pastors and church, walking worthy 
Walking worthy means that we're going to be able to rightly handle the gospel. And pastors are going to be trustworthy to share the word. And the people, the church, Arbor, you're going to be soft-hearted enough to continue to receive the instruction, right? So we're going to be praying about such things <laughs> in just a minute. But before we do, I want to close with verse 19. This is what Paul is saying um, about his beloved Thessalonican church. They're just dear to him. He's been like family with them. And he's served in all sorts of roles, like the playful brother and the children. He's been a coworker, like a, par a partner working shoulder to shoulder. He has the, the boldness to describe himself as a nursing mom with his, his care for them. And like a father, right? father coach so what do we do then when all of these stack up well let me let me close with the words that he says what gives us hope and joy what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before the lord jesus when he returns it's you <laughs> yes you are our pride and joy Arbor, it's you. You are our pride and joy. We, we don't want to be adding any bricks <laughs> to an already, what may already be a heavy, hard season. So what we want to do right now is go into a time of prayer. I want to be praying for you as you regard um, Maybe as I was naming some of the bricks, you were like, yep, that's me. I've got the bitterness thing going on. Or maybe you thought, yeah, I'm a little bit in the anger thing. Like I've got some of that. Or cynicism, right? Like a distrust. Let's move into a time of prayer. Let's pray for these things. Jesus, I acknowledge that these things are painful the bricks that maybe we've walked into Arbor already being wounded by church leaders, or maybe we've lost trust along the way, and these bricks have become hard in our hearts. They've seemed to cement in there and have built walls, not just between each other, but also towards you, Lord. Our desire is to be soft-hearted for the things that you, you have for us. We want to we hear your voice, Lord. We don't want brick walls to be built in our hearts. We don't want to be heavy-hearted. We don't want to be hard-hearted. We want to be tender towards you and your spirit. So, Lord, I just, I just pray. You know the, the names of these bricks that, are, that we're dealing with? I pray that your Holy Spirit and the power that you have can reach in and remove these, dissolve them. Even today that we would experience a softness and tenderness. And Lord, instead of that weight, I just pray for light, that you would be bringing that light in to shine. And also, just not, not light in a shiny kind of way, but feeling light as in a 
carbonated way, <laughs> that we would be just lighthearted, knowing that you have removed our burdens and our bricks. We trust you with this good, holy work, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen.